0: Welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy. I'm here today with Andy, Wes, and Steve. The full team is back together just briefly and just for this week because Andy will be heading off to Romania and I know we are very very curious um as much as you probably are in regards to everything that's going to be going on there so welcome to the show guys uh it's probably been a while that we've actually all been on here together
1: yeah it's good to be with you all yeah it's been a long time
2: everybody back just for Andy to take right <laughs> <off again.
1: laughs> <laughs> <laughs> well, what don't you start with me how far you
3: want to get away from (laughs) us before we jump into things uh i think that we should mention that there's an event coming up that i'm actually uh sad that i'm not going to be a part of but wes and steve uh, i'll be i'll be flying uh while you guys uh have the next acle on the book of revelation Mm -hmm. that's
1: right yeah so that's coming up on sunday the 26th 4 p.m pacific time And so then you can figure out wherever you are, what time it is. Um, We even have like a guy from Germany join us from time to time. It's like one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning, his time. But anyway, we decided to tackle, you know, the book of the Bible that's the easiest to interpret. (laughs) (laughs) It's only the book of Revelation. (laughs) So I've been telling the team uh, for the last couple of weeks that I come into this with some trepidation, because, you know, just by necessity of it, we're going to be stepping on somebody's toes, right? But uh, but it's going to be a fun time of just kind of looking at this book from a 30,000 feet kind of bird's eye view, uh, some bigger picture stuff. Um, And my hope is that it's going to really help us get a better grasp of this book that in many ways has a, a huge bearing on how we understand our life here and now. So I'm looking forward to it. Come join us. Um, If you guys want to sign up, there's still time and space for it, although space is limited. So do it today. ApologiesCanada.com forward slash A-C-L-E, and you should see it. Or you can just go to ApologiesCanada.com, and you can't miss it. It's right on the front page. I said, Steve, uh, after
2: 1984, I want to do something where I don't have to deal with any conspiracy theories I don't have to wade through anything controversial or <laughs> political, so we just picked the most milquetoast book of the Bible we could find, and we just went from there. So it'll be it'll be fun. Been I know Steve and I have been both reading a lot and coming up with some different visuals and stuff that we're looking forward to sharing with everybody once they uh, once they get on and start interacting.
3: Yeah, we 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 do have a way of just jumping into the deep end at AC, don't we? Yeah, it's,
1: absolutely. <laughs> I,
3: I know I've been influenced by Andy on that score because if you
1: if you've known Andy for any amount of time, the kind of uh, thing that he likes to do when he's mentoring somebody is no warning, just throw them in the deep end, S- sink or swim. Right? That's that's so how I, I raise my kids.
3: Out. So I'm just like, here's the pool. Why not just jump into <laughs> the deep end? Yeah. <laughs> Speaking about the deep end, we gotta we gotta. Uh, a beauty of a topic today. Yeah, take us into that, Andy. Today we're going to be talking
0: essentially about, for starters, your your time in in Romania, and and, and you're going to be giving a talk out there. Won't you let our listeners know what's going on?
3: Yeah, yeah. So what happened was, first of all, if listeners have been following uh, my life at the moment, I've been uh, living a chaotic life of bouncing all <laughs> over the place uh within the the world and canada i don't normally live this way let me just say that right off the (laughs) get-go and maybe some of you guys resonate with this but it's like i call it the covid storm it's like things in your life that have been put off for the last three years have all like dogpiled into this this moment are you guys experiencing that too like i I was not exposed i was not exposed i was not supposed to be this busy Easy for you to say <laughs> you know i wasn't supposed to be this busy but it's all it has all happened at once i was gonna say didn't wes didn't you give like 12 talks in eight days or
2: something ridiculous yeah t- uh, 10 in three weeks so not as bad as uh 12 in but, eight days but yeah i think with everything opening up i was just not paying attention to my schedule and uh you know more invitations. And I thought, yeah, this looks great. So, but it was all good. It was great. I'm sure I wasn't bouncing across the world. So as much as driving all over the province is one thing, uh, I didn't, I didn't get any type of altitude sickness. I didn't get, <laughs> you know, airlifted anywhere. Nothing. So
3: yeah, you G- gotta, yeah, I gotta love the, the jet lag and speaking engagement. So yeah. at any rate, it's all kind of come together, but I'm ex- I'm excited about this this trip. Uh, this has been in the the making for years. With going to Romania, speaking at the World Congress and Philosophy of Law, I'll be addressing the subject of rights and responsibilities of conscience, which is is a, a huge and important topic right now in our world. And we're going to get into that uh, shortly, and you'll see just you know how significant this issue is. So I'm excited to be you know speaking on this issue from a Christian perspective. And hopefully honing my my ideas, but also being able to uh, influence uh, with with these ideas. Now, once it was kind of set that I w- that I'd be participating in this, then uh, it kind of developed from there, uh, doing a number of different speaking engagements in Romania at different churches, uh, different universities in Romania. In fact. Uh, from what I understand, I, there's a, I'm going to be on a radio show, a TV show, like they've kind of just dogpiled piled every. It's going to be it's going to be madness. <laughs> uh, awesome. Looking forward to it though, and as well, Romanians, man, they're hardcore. They they don't mess around. So they mm-hmm. they as well said, hey, we want to uh, translate your book Thinking into Romanian, and I thought, yeah, sure. I mean that that is a lot of work. When we translated it into Russian, was a lot of work, uh, but mm-hmm. they did it within a few months, man. Translated into. Romanian. They've got a whole bunch of copies ready to go. So, we're going to be doing speaking engagements, giving out books, and uh, Lord willing, uh, encouraging people in their faith and seeing people find faith. Uh, so, be in prayer with us as, mm-hmm. as we do that. One thing I do want to just be honest with you about and just say right off the get-go as you pray for us, there are, there are challenges when we do work like this in uh, other countries. And, you know, one of the big challenges is that uh, there are people— there are men and women who have not given the church apologetics a good name. And so, right mm. now, particularly in Romania, they're really struggling with the Ravi Zacharias scandal. They're still struggling with that. And so, that has been weighing on this whole project. What, you know, how, how do we address that? What do we do about that? And so, you know, your prayers would be appreciated as, as you know, there's many of us that have to, you know, wade through that and help people work through you know the hurt caused not just outside the church but in the inside the church
0: that's a really important thing to point out just as as before we get into these things i think um it's it's not said enough you know a, a, about the aftermath of ministry leaders falling out of grace and and all those different things i think a lot of people just they feel as though you know oh, okay well that happened All right, but they're not thinking about the countless numbers of people in that church, the the missionary leaders, the ministry leaders that are in those communities. And I think the church just needs to be more mindful, um, just in general, to to be praying for the healing of those communities, because there's a lot of people that have to pick up the pieces. There's a lot of people that are getting blindsided, um, having nothing to do. um, And this isn't just Ravi Zacharias Ministries. This is all kinds.
3: On that note, Troy, uh, when I was out with Wes, when we were out in Toronto— Uh, speaking of that conference that weekend or that week, uh, Bruxy Cavey Mm. was arrested, Yeah, you know, and it was just another, you know, one of those moments where it's, it's more than just trying to engage with what's going on in culture, but also dealing with what's going on in the, you know, in the church and in these communities that are hurting. Yeah. 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 There are definitely ripple effects. So keep us in prayer, uh, and maybe that's a good place to jump off when we talk about rights and responsibilities uh, yeah. of conscience, and what does this look like now? Uh, what's being discussed at this World Congress, and particularly w- with what I'll be addressing, is is looking at uh, and dealing with Canada's uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, in particular. Now, this, of course, you know, conscience is being talked about, you know, broadly, you know, internationally, but. Within Canada, this is a significant issue to Canadians because this is an aspect of our of our uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The Charter says, "...whereas Canada was founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in its subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by laws as can be demonstrably justified." in a free and democratic society. So many of you know that this idea of reasonable limits, of course, is is really being questioned. You know, what are the reasonable limits of taking away someone's right of conscience? But as we get into today, you'll see that this idea of a free and democratic society is at the very heart of having a right of conscience. And In fact, I would say that this is one of the hallmarks of a democracy, is that you have uh, a right of conscience. And everyone has the following fundamental freedoms, the, the Charter goes on to say. And now I'll just list off you know, these, these ones that are pertinent to what we're talking about, but uh, A, freedom of conscience and religion, freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression. Let me just stop there for a moment. A lot of people don't realize that in Canada you have the freedom of opinion, freedom of opinion and expression, including freedom of the press and other media of communication, freedom of peaceful assembly— Freedom of association. Now, I want to get into this topic then about this right of uh, conscience and freedom and religion, conscience and religion. And I just want to say, as we get into this, that I am making a distinction here, and in fact, there's even legal precedent for this, that conscience and freedom are not viewed as the same, that these are uh, distinct ideas, that you have a freedom of conscience and and it can be informed by religion, and I would also argue philosophy in particular. Today, we're going to argue philosophy. It can be informed by that, but but these are uh, distinct and should be treated as distinct.
0: The freedom to have a conscience, it just—in in a roundabout way, it sounds really—a really nice way of saying, yeah, you have freedom to have an opinion, but we still get to decide that you're wrong. And we can enforce— whatever laws we've put in place if we deem that you are wrong enough to have a consequence
3: this gets into an important conversation that you know we're going to get into more kind of later in the show but but laws are your you know laws are interesting right because laws are a society coming together saying that your conscience should come to this conclusion but one of the aspects of uh you know a free and democratic society is that there is the inherent reality that you and the society can err mm. right so what do you do in those moments right when your conscience says that society has erred that the law in fact is not correct and we'll we'll get into that more before we do let's let's do what all good philosophers and theologians do define terms <laughs> So, by conscience, and tell me what you guys think about this, because this is a big question right now in, uh, you know, as, as people are, are talking more and more about what this means to have a right of conscience, that one of the big discussions is, is well, how do we define what it is to have a conscience? And I'm not talking about, you know, consciousness, we're talking about conscience. And, and really, you know, I think cartoons depict this well, where you got the angel on one shoulder and the demon on the other shoulder— mm-hmm. Or yeah. if we're thinking of Pinocchio, right, you've got Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder that's kind of saying, hey, you know, this is right or this is this is wrong sort of idea. But as I've been playing this out, and tell me uh, how this sits with you, and I know you might need to, like, you know, dwell on this a little bit, but I would argue that conscience is the moral guide and duty encountered within an I-thou relationship. And so that being the case— the degree one humanizes, dehumanizes, or anthropomorphizes will potentially heighten, numb, or extend their conscience. Now, let me let me develop that for a, a moment quickly here. So if what I'm saying then is your conscience is this moral guide that's <clears throat> being in duty, that's being encountered when you come into relationship with another person. When you are in relationship with somebody else, you encounter this these moral duties of the way that you and I are to treat one another. And and really, I mean, you can look at like the Ten Commandments. This is this is a moral. Uh, uh, these these are moral duties that you encounter, such as you know, not not to murder, for example. And what's interesting is you see this across history, across cultures. That and and if you read uh, C.S. Lewis's book *The Abolition of Man*, he he does something interesting in the appendix. He he actually shows you all these different cultures and times in history that just saying, look how consistent they are. Uh, that that they recognize this when they come into relationship with another person, you encounter this. Now, what I do then in that second part is I'm saying so. Then, if that's the case, the greater you see another person's humanity, your conscience is going to be heightened. The less you see somebody's humanity dehumanizing them, your conscience is going to be numbed. Mm. And the the to the extent that you anthropomorphize, that is to give human characteristics to an object or an animal, you will extend that conscience. In other words, you will grant that moral duty you're encountering in that relationship with a person, you will begin to want to, to give that elsewhere. Um, Right. Now I'm I'm not advocating for that by all means I'm in fact I think this is a dangerous thing to do but it's what happens whether this you, happens whether or not how you're looking at your pet or the way that you're looking at the planet I, I mean you name it there's lots we could talk about with regards to that
1: so it, how is that different or is it different from moral intuition for our listeners if you're not familiar with that term moral intuition is just the you know kind of the faculty that we have, so that we recognize right from wrong, good and evil, those kinds of things, in the same way that when I, you know, look at my phone, I can see that oh, it's black. And how do I know this just by seeing? Right. So moral intuition is like that faculty where you can see something is good and evil, right and wrong. How does conscience play into that? Is it or is it one of the same thing?
3: I would say that it's similar, Steve, in that you're coming into what i'm using is an i thou relationship so that's a, a relationship with another person another human being and that that moral guide or duty is being encountered now where the intuition becomes less and more is i would argue that there are some aspects of our moral conscience that that are encountered to a greater degree like they're less ambiguous such as should i murder should i lie um, adultery, those sorts of things. Your your conscience is going to be hit hard by those things. But other things can be much more difficult to parse out. And this is what I think is interesting. In you know, with regards to saying Canada with common law, where we're coming together, saying, "Hey, some of these are going to be difficult, and we're going to have to work that out to what what the law should be on these more challenging questions of what what would be the right decision in any particular moment."
1: Yeah, I, th- I think. That That's actually important to remember that when we're talking about um, encountering morality, it, it doesn't always mean that it's obvious, right? Sometimes there are—often you, you have different moral, moral duties that can collide. I mean, we saw that all throughout um, the the pandemic, you know, like what is the duty of the state? The state has the duty to protect the rights of the citizens, but— the state also has the duty to protect the public health and and all those kinds of things, right? So when those things start colliding, how do you parse it out? Um, So it's not, just because you have moral intuition doesn't mean that every aspect of morality is obvious to you. Mm. Well, and as I kind of mull over what you were saying, Andy, I think like,
2: I guess the question that comes to my mind is like our, our conscience is... It's a gift from God, and it's intrinsic to our personhood to a certain degree. But it's also uniquely individualized, you know, since no two consciences match in every respect. I think, you know, there are people who I know who feel convicted in their conscience about a particular issue that I may not. So in our fallen world, a person's conscience can be seared, but it can also become overly sensitive. So I guess, you know, when we consider those truths it's clear how relational tensions can develop. So what if, like, what if I have a standard of conscience that, say, Troy doesn't? How do, how do we interact with that? I mean, the big one that I was thinking of when you were talking, Andy, was, you know, Martin Luther, when he's standing before his tribunal, when he says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And then he ends with, God help me, because that's one of the only things you can do in that kind of situation. But so I guess my question is, what what do we do with a situation where my conscience might not necessarily feel the conviction that yours does?
3: Yeah, this, this is a, a good question. And I, I love it. You guys are asking all the questions that, you know, as the philosophical ball starts rolling down the hill, these are, you know, and the, the questions start coming. These are the sorts of questions you, you need to ask. And so— so to get into that question, uh, Wes, I think the first thing that we need to appreciate is that uh, a democracy is predicated on the belief that free people encounter moral responsibilities within that I-thou relationship. That, that you and I, when we are free to do our thing, right, when we're living life, that we will naturally encounter moral duties when we come into relationship with one another. That, that that will happen. Democracy is founded on that principle, that idea. Uh, or else we would just have chaos. We the, There there could be no societies. There could be no communities because we would be so dramatically opposed to one another sort of idea. But what we find is that's not the case, in fact. Mm-hmm. What, what you find is that we're actually uh, very consistent on this, that when we come into relationship with people, that we, in fact, do encounter moral d- duties and uh, responsibilities that are, in fact, consistent. But what you're asking, Wes, is what do we do when it's not consistent? What do we do in those moments where you, say, have a society like Nazi Germany—and I'm not just using them as a whipping boy, but there's a case study that I'm presenting at the World Congress that deals with this—what do we do when they are, you know, participating in mass murder— You know, what's what's happening there? So this Mm. this gets interesting, by the way, because there's a guy and part of the case study I'm uh, going to bring up is Oscar Groening, who at uh, 93 years old was found guilty. This was in 2015. So I bring this up to say it's not just the Nazis aren't just a whipping boy, but like this is still uh, current. Uh, Because this was a landmark case about what to do with this guy, he was an accountant at Auschwitz, and you know, so so what do we do? What do we do with that? Should he be held accountable? And and it's interesting because I read through the court case like from top to bottom, and and ultimately what the court case the court consisted of the case sorry the case consisted of is basically saying, hey, look at all of these horrendous things that Oscar witnessed as Mm. an accountant, right? Clearly, his conscience should have been in conflict with what was happening. That, that's right. the case, right? He had a responsibility, in other words, to his conscience, and he did not—this is the irony of it, right? The state holding him accountable for not participating in civil disobedience. In other words, he should have disobeyed the state. He should have desert, deserted, but he didn't. Mm. Thus, he was sent, sentenced and convicted— for being complicit in mass murder, Scripture actually speaks explicitly
0: to that. Romans two fifteen. It's like they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thought accuses or uh, or even excuse them. And so, just like you're saying it, like it's it's right there. Whether you if you don't do something or you don't say something, you're actually incriminating yourself one way or another. Let me now
3: just advance this just one step further, because I, I need to answer, just so I can answer Wes's question, because I don't want listeners to be like, hey, he hasn't answered that question yet.
2: Yeah, that's my <laughs> question.
1: <laughs> Jeez.
3: <laughs> so I, I've still got it in Target, Wes. Uh, so what I want to do now is I just want to bring it bring it one step further, because you could say, okay, well, what happened, though, with Oscar? Like And many others, you know, why, why was their conscience not— uh, in in conflict. Now, interestingly enough, Oscars was, but there was different things at play. There's an interesting uh, journal article that was written, though, by a guy by the name of Leo Alexander. He wrote an article, and if anybody are interested in the stuff that I'm talking about, I would highly encourage you to check it out. It's called Medical Science Under Dictatorship. And this was published— in the New England Journal of Medicine on July 14th, 1949, right? So, this is right after World War II, and this guy, Leo, he worked under the United States Secretary of War, Robert uh, Patterson, as an army medical investigator and later became a key medical advisor during the Nuremberg trial and writer of uh, part of the Nuremberg Code. Okay, so... So I'm 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 saying that because you need to appreciate this guy investigated this whole thing right after it happened, and here's what he said. Uh, it, you know, made this possible, and and really, Wes, this this is the answer to the question you brought up. He says science under dict- under dictatorship becomes subordinate. Uh, s- sorry, becomes uh, subordinated to the guiding philosophy of the dictatorship. Irrespective of other trappings, the guiding philosophic principle of recent dictatorships, including that of the Nazis, has been Hegelian in that what was being considered rational utility and corresponding doctrine and planning was uh, has replaced moral, ethical, and religious values. Nazi propaganda was highly effective in perverting public opinion and public conscience In a remarkably short time. So, in other words, the philosophy guiding people's conscience will either bring them to see somebody like a Jew, for example, as a human being, or not as a human being. In this case, they were not viewed as human, life unworthy of life, if you will. That was the mantra. And thus, they They were put to death and the and the conscience was numbed. Does that mean though, that they are not accountable to the philosophies that they embraced and the in the conclusions that that led, that led them? Because again, this court case says, no, 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 look what you witnessed and saw, these were clearly human beings that you were treating in this way, and you are held accountable for those philosophies that you embraced that led you. To participating in those horrific acts—is this something like
0: where where eugenics came into play? You know, immoral in, in testing for medical discoveries—is that something
3: in that wheelhouse or Troy? That that's exactly and in fact, Leo talks about that that very thing in in his article. That and in fact, his article is one of the most difficult articles to read that I've read because he talks about and he interviewed, and I think this is really interesting. It's not like he got this third hand. He interviewed those people who, you know, had experiments done to them. He interviewed those people. He interviewed those doctors that did these things. Like, this is like firsthand investigation of this, and the sorts of things that happened were truly heinous, what they did to these people. But yes, so that eugenics, right? Um, eugenics being a Greek word for uh, well-born, was was the guiding principle uh, that— that was uh undergirding right it was the philosophy that was that was leading them to make these sorts of decisions with for the Nazis what they would call the the vok right like this is the the German stock that they were seeking to preserve or improve mm-hmm. well one of the things that I find really
1: interesting about conscience and freedom and all those kinds of things. Um, And and civil disobedience comes into this too, right? Like, Because that's sort of the outworking of your conscience. If your conscience tells you that uh, a certain kind of law is unjust, well, how do you resist it? Um, And civil disobedience can come into the picture, like how Martin Luther King Jr. Right? Um, Fought against institutionalized racism in the United States, or... William Wilberforce, well, I guess in his case, he, it wasn't so much civil disobedience, but like African-Americans, they would do like sit-ins and those kinds of things, uh, intentionally break the law, being willing to pay the, the penalty um, that comes with the breaking of the law. But all of that actually presupposes that there is something that's even more fundamental to the law, uh, which is morality, which you actually talked about just earlier about how you you encounter this, right? This is not something you just invent. You encounter this. And so the law is only good as long as it, it matches that it is a faithful reflection of that morality. And um, so on the one hand, it seems that we're held accountable to the state, you know, under the law that they legislate and those kinds of things. But in a much bigger sense you're also held accountable to the moral law that undergirds all of that so when those two come into conflict what do you do and this is what I find a little frustrating because on the one hand our society says there is no such objective moral law it's just all on the sort of the Darwinian evolutionary perspective these are just there's nothing sacred to this moral law it's just instinct that blindly kind of built up over time as, you know, these relatively advanced primates try to do life together. Or somebody like Freud might say, right, you know, this is just all our psychological instinct or whatever. So there's nothing sacred to, there's nothing objective about these moral laws. And yet we, we don't live like that today. Like, people are held accountable to, you know, all kinds of moral violations, and we expect people to rise up and challenge the the power structures of the day and all those kinds of things. Well, what do we bind our rights
2: of conscience to? You know, what is that framework for conscience to begin with? Cuz like you like you said Steve, you know, we have this world that, you know, wants to claim that, you know, we are just evolved chimps who have inalienable human rights, you know, that according to you know natural secular materialism were biologically oriented survival machines who must care for the weakest and most vulnerable among us. You know, these kind of concepts that, you know, you and I, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so <laughs> let's honor one another's sexual boundaries at all times. So, you know, these are these are concepts <laughs> that you know how do we jump from one to the other if we're just heirs of brutal evolutionary history? Uh, but we should spread our influence exclusively via education and persuasion and never by force. You know, these are concepts that I think we, in a society, would say, yeah, of course, like, that makes sense. Uh, survival of the fittest. But also, you know, we should never pursue a mas- master race. Well, okay, but that thing over there. <laughs> so, you know, I think it, it this makes sense philosophically and theologically in a Christian worldview. Mm. But— Andy, is that something that you'll, you'll talk about is like how really there is a foundation for these things. And, you know, that foundation, you know, comes from somewhere.
3: Yeah. So first of all, you and Steve have asked and opened up so many different doors, uh, that I'm like, okay, which ones do I close first? But yeah,
1: (laughs) I expect, we expect you to close all of them. Yeah.
3: I expect (laughs) you to
2: start kicking them. (laughs) them
3: Yeah. 30 minutes. Go go yeah. i'm gonna start kicking these well first of all i'm gonna back up once again and and say that this has been a journey for me as i've been working through this so one of the things that one of the first journeys that i was working through is as i started studying this oscar groaning case and looking deeper into this what i began to realize uh and in fact the, one of the one of the people putting on uh, this world congress said, "Hey, we really like the topic you're doing, but we want you to read this book called The Nazi Doctors." And I said, "Okay." So, mm. it's a huge book, right? So I start plowing through this thing. And what I find is who is at the the front gates of, you know, who are the gatekeepers of morality in society? It it would appear that that it's that it's doctors, in fact. And when you look, particularly at, say, Nazi Germany, it was the doctors that were the moral gatekeepers that began to open the doors of eugenics and that, that ultimately would lead to the gas chambers. Historically, no one would argue that. They, like, that's why doctors were held accountable at the Nuremberg trials, and that's why mm. many of them were hung, is because mm. they, they were the, the entrance of these ideas. And, and it's interesting, by the way, that we talk about, you know, civil disobedience, it's important that we remember uh, that Dutch physicians, when the Nazis, you know, began to order how they would view and treat patients, refused, that they resigned, that they held to civil disobedience, and they lost their licenses, and they would see patients uh, secretly, and over a hundred of them were sent to concentration camps. So it's interesting, mm-hmm. though, historically, we look back on them and we lift them up and say, good on you, you did the right thing, you should have um, uh, you know, disobeyed, right? And, the gov- and It's interesting, right? Because the government's even like, good on you, <laughs> that, that's the irony of all this, right? You, you did the right thing opposing us sort of idea, because we had embraced, the society had embraced ideas that were flawed. Now, people like Oscar Groening, though, of course, they're saying, you failed, you were an accountant at Auschwitz. You saw what was going on. You should have done what the Dutch physicians did. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because a doctor friend of mine, who's actually an adjunct speaker of ours, uh, Raphael Samuel, appreciate him so much. He heard me presenting uh, on these ideas um, at uh, in Toronto and said, Andy, I, I, I love you, brother, and everything's great. I got to challenge you, though. And he said, I think... That you've got the doctors as the moral gatekeepers isn't quite right. I think the philosophy of the day is the is the gatekeeper. That that's where the door gets opened. It's not the physicians, mm. it's the philosophies. And as I and as I've dug deeper, and as I and and and, by, and I already read for you, Leo, saying that it was Hegelian philosophy that actually was the moral gatekeeper that opened the gate, if you will. Uh, that, that he's right. He's right. It is, in fact, the philosophies. So what we're what we're getting to then is that now, just stick with me here. Democracy then is inherently messy. It's inherently messy because what it's predicated on is that people, again, when they're in relationship with other people, will encounter these uh, moral duties. They will, however, if they begin to embrace philosophies that distort the humanity of the other person, that I-thou relationship doesn't take place. It Mm. isn't encountered, and thus they will not experience the moral duties. And so the philosophies, Wes, are absolutely key, and it's so significant in a free democracy that we can debate these sorts of things, challenge each other when a philosophy is being embraced— that is leading us away from seeing the humanity of the other. So that means then that the Christian faith is significant because it has such a high view of one's humanity that yeah. makes you that that forces you to encounter that other person, right? Now, I would mm-hmm. say there's other philosophies that do that too. I don't know, maybe you guys would disagree, but I think there could be a, a philosophy that could that could do the the same thing. But what's interesting though is once you tend to follow those philosophies farther they bring you towards Christianity
1: mm. yeah I, I do find that um, as one guy said right we're living in an age where we want the kingdom without the king uh, we, we have inherited all the, all these like judeo-christian ethics and and all those kinds of things but then we want all of the sort of the the good things that come with it but having it
3: detached unmoored from its actual foundation which by the way what what is that foundation mm-hmm. the foundation is god right Th- like this right. is this is what nietzsche talks about in and i think uh, again carl truman was right to bring up in his book the rise and triumph of the modern self where he says we lost our moral anchor when we with the de, with when Nietzsche declared the death of God, right? Not that we killed God, but now we embraced a worldview, a philosophy, in which God was not; it was no longer an anchor, and mm-hmm. leads to all the other sorts of philosophies you brought up, Wes. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's interesting you mention Nietzsche,
1: because as I'm kind of doing my readings lately on transhumanism, posthumanism, and all that kind of stuff, Nietzsche gets brought up all the time because he actually really, I mean, if nothing else, you got to admire him for being really um, brave enough to follow his philosophy to its logical conclusion, right? You take God out of the world, this is what happens. And all you've got left now is are these like discrete selves, right? We're all detached particular selves and all we've got left is will to power. That's all we have left. And if you read anything on transhumanism, post-humanism, that's what it is. You're, it's self-mastery. All that you're doing is you're recreating yourself through your will. Now, uh, one, one of course, one frightening thing is that uh, when you actually apply that on a state level, you get somebody like Adolf Hitler, right? That's why it was so important for him to win the war against Soviet Union because the winner is always right, right? It's strong against the weak. And so he just had to win that war. Of course he didn't and he ultimately lost. But um, as I'm doing more reading, Nietzsche is starting to become a really prominent figure because he did such a, 180-degree turn from the Judeo-Christian ethic.
3: And I would argue, though, he just was a product of his time. Society, since the Enlightenment, had been sliding in that direction. I think he just declared what was obvious at the time.
2: Yeah. Well, and what I've always found interesting about Nietzsche is that if you read a lot of his stuff, you find out he's less arguing that God isn't necessary or— that it's wrong or, you know, it's kind of the the Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris kind of arguments. He's arguing that he doesn't like God more than he's arguing that he, you know, God isn't true. And even, you know, uh, Richard Dawkins wrote The God Delusion. And then there was actually a response by a number of philosophers against The God Delusion because Mm -hmm. Dawkins, being an excellent scientist, proved himself to be a terrible philosopher. And there's this one guy... Who teaches at the London School of Economics? His name is John Gray. Now, there are two John Grays. One wrote, Men are from Mars, Women are from Venus. That's not this yeah, guy. Not this, this guy, guy is the other John Gray. Um, and he wrote a series of essays called The Straw Dogs mm. Thoughts on Humans and Other Animals. And I'll just read you a quote because I think this plays into the conversation. He says, In it, modern secular humanism is the faith that through science, humankind can know the truth and be set free. But if Darwin's theory of natural selection is true, this is impossible. The human mind sees evolutionary success, not truth. To think otherwise is to resurrect the pre-Darwinian error that humans are different from all other animals. And I think in that sense, sometimes I wonder, you know, you hear people describe themselves as secular humanists. Sometimes I wonder, okay, well, secular humanist, pick one. Because it's, it's hard to be both at the same time, unless you have, you know, like you said, Andy, that concept of well, where do we balance our right of conscience?
3: What are we held holding our conscience to? That's right. What is the what is the philosophy that's that's guiding me? And I'd say that and that's why I was saying that you can have philosophies where they will seek to lift up, you know humanity, such as a secular humanist, for example. Now, now by that, we're talking about somebody who's ultimately embraced a philosophy where they're trying to lift up the value of a human being without God. That's, that's ultimately what we're talking about there. The problem is, it's got all sorts of inconsistencies and holes to it, and they that, that philosophy ultimately has to be uh, inconsistent. And, and that's the challenge. That's where it starts borrowing the Judeo-Christian worldview to actually support it, and if you follow it far enough, it's going to lead you back to christianity that that that's that's ultimately what I was trying to get at uh, with with that point
1: so then um, can we kind of bring it back to the presentation that you're going to do for the World Congress y- your subtitle actually says you know the um, what was it the government can't have it both ways yeah so can you can you explain that a little bit more?
3: Um, what what did you mean by that? Yeah, thanks, Steve. Uh, this this kind of brings us back to asking the question: if this is the case, if conscience goes astray when it embraces philosophies that, for you know, that dehumanize, or is that happening today? It, uh, are, what kind of philosophies are we embracing today? Now, you've already brought up some of them, but I particularly just want to um, bring up one in particular. Uh, And that's in the medical profession. And this is where I see currently uh, this inconsistency taking place, particularly in Canada, where the courts want it both ways, where they want to tell you what to do and then hold you responsible for uh, what you do at the same time. Uh, It's the irony of, you know, groaning, right? A state that tells you you should do one thing and then years later says you shouldn't have done that. Now we're going to hold you responsible for, for what you did. Uh, there's a book right now by Far Curlin and Christopher uh, Tolfelson, and the book's title is "The Way of Medicine: Ethics in the Healing Profession." If you are a physician, if you are in the medical profession at all, uh, I'd highly recommend reading this book. And um, the the it's it's uh, very uh, insightful. And he writes this. He says medicine has lost its way because it lacks clarity about where uh, the way should lead. We no longer have a shared public understanding of what medicine is for and what the end of medicine is or should be. Rather, medicine has substituted for its once clearly recognized person something uh, amorphous, subjective, and shadowy. As a consequence, the norms that medical professionals and professional ethicists bring to medical practice are devoid of objective content and radically deficient for guiding doctors and protecting patients. In answering the question, what is medicine according to the provider of services model—I just want to pause there for a moment—what he does— what these authors do that's so significant is they've 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 really got their finger on a key problem right now that's global but particularly in Canada and that is that we have now begun to embrace a philosophy that views our physicians as providers mm. they are providers it is a very reductive dehumanizing way of viewing a physician they are a provider of services instead of uh, what ultimately these authors put forward as the way of medicine. Like, what does it look like to actually seek the flourishing of another person that that medicine was, was always intended to be? Now, uh, notice why I'm bringing this up, because you might be like, well, why are we talking about doctors? Again, doctors tend to be the precursors for a society that's embracing faulty philosophies that are leading them astray. We've seen this historically. And so what's happening? We're seeing this again— With our physicians. And they are the ones that are being put into the the moral challenge of whether or not they are going to follow the philosophies that a society's embraced currently, such in Canada, or if they're going to stand up against it. And and so it's not surprising then what he goes on to say here. Um, He says, medicine. Uh, comprises a set of technical skills that are to be put to work to satisfy patient-client preferences in this provider model. Healthcare workers are providers of services, and these services are undertaken for the sake of patient well-being, understood principally in terms of satisfying the patient's wishes. In the context of an individualist and consumeristic environment—notice this is the philosophy— uh, these efforts all tend to default to three norms, and this, again, is the philosophy. What the law permits, what is technologically possible, and what the patient wants. He then goes on in the book to say this, and this is really important to understand with what's happening in Canada right now. And again, this is globally, not just in Canada. Uh, it's no surprise, then, uh, that declining professional authority is followed by second Consequence, a crisis of medical morale. Insofar mm-hmm. as medicine merely provides desired services, its pretense of moral uh, seriousness is a charade, and its attempts at professionalism are a facade. The practice of medicine is characteristically grueling with long hours spent under taxing circumstances. Is it surprising that physicians who experience themselves largely as merely functionaries asked to set aside traditional medical norms, religious convictions, and their best judgment, right of conscience, suffer high rates of burnout? Jeez, that's a pretty pivotal thing to point out because
0: I think if, if, you know, for any listener on here who may be listening to this podcast and they're like, man, this is over my... My head, like I think that's a really, really key point to bring out right there, because we've been given a perfect case study with COVID, right? We we even call it, yeah, like our our medical our medical services and all those sorts of things, and we've seen the way we've talked about you know our the health officials in our different provinces and those sorts of things, and I and I think like that's really the nail on the head is they are operating under a system of thinking that we have created for them. And so how could we possibly expect anything different? Mm-hmm. And I, and maybe this is a moment, even, even for as someone from the church, a person of faith, how on earth could we expect something different from the world system for them to cater to us? Because whether we like it or not, even though I would say even the most Christian person that is out there, have looked at the medical professional field as merely people who you offer me a service. My my taxes are paying for this, and da 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 da. I mean, your subtitle is the government can't have it both ways. Well, neither can society, and that's
3: where it starts. I, I think you're bringing up a really good point, Troy. This could be one of the inherent flaws of a socialist system of medicine: is that mm-hmm. it's easy to buy into a philosophy that it's that it's the society or the government that calls the shots yeah and what we're seeing right now is the conscience of doctors is being violated and that's even being acknowledged that they are violating it. But remember, in the charter, it says subject only to such reasonable limits. And so then the society gets to determine what are the reasonable limits right of denying these doctors their conscience and I and I and I think you got to appreciate the fact, that we want doctors with a high conscience right we yes. want th- we want them to have this right of conscience because they they're at the very front gates of the of you know society's moral le- leanings like what like what's happening we need somebody there that holds the gate if you will but and it tends to be with the physicians where this is just one area that tends to be the front lines if you will and where are we compromising it? Well, I would argue one of the areas that right now it is being compromised is with regards to made medical assistance in dying. Yep. And particularly where it's being used against physicians is with regards to requiring them, forcing them to give an effective referral. So notice it's, it is forcing them to be complicit in the death of another person. Now, again, I'm bringing all this up because, one, it relates to the Oscar Groening case, uh, and, B, that notice that we're not dealing with, like, some difficult issue of conscience. We're not dealing with one of those, you know, issues that needs to get debated and, and people have been unsure of throughout history. No, no, no. This is one of those issues, death, right, taking of another life that we have been incredibly consistent on throughout human history, that this is wrong. And now you've got a society to say, no, doctors, you are a provider of services, and you will provide this service, even if it goes against your conscience. Mm. And
1: that's, you You mentioned socialized medicine earlier. Um, like, I, I grew up in a slightly different environment growing up in South Korea. Their medical system looks a little bit more like that of the U.S., right? And... Um, and especially growing up in South Korea, we're always worried about, you know, communism and socialism just to the north and all that kind of stuff. And um, one thing that that uh, I've been thinking about is yeah, one of the dangers of socialized medicine is precisely that all the power is concentrated in one body, right? The, basically, the government decides how to, you know, they, they can... Ultimately, decide who gets um, who gets medical care and who doesn't, and they're going to call the shots on whether you are life worthy of life, right? And you see this in the beginning of life and end of life issues like abortion and euthanasia and those kinds of things.
3: Now, if uh, Steve, if we could just make one quick adjustment to what you're saying, yeah, and that is, in this case, it to be fair, it's not the state that's saying life worthy of life; it's the individual. But it's mm, the state yeah. that is allowing the individual allowing to have right. that kind of power that overrides another's conscience. Yeah, that's that's
1: a, that's a good adjustment. Thank you for that.
3: Now, on the flip side, though,
1: like because you might be tempted to think, oh, then we should totally go with the sort of the American style, whatever. Um, but on, on this kind of a system, too, you're going to have flaws. So, for example, you have an insurance company. Right, Like a health insurance company saying, oh, we're not going to cover you for this treatment, but we're going to cover this uh, pill if you are going to opt for, you know, know, basically doctor-assisted suicide. We'll cover that pill for you, but we're not going to cover this expensive treatment, right? So whether it's the government or a big company or the individual person, at the end of the day, what you have is, well... Humanity is broken. If if it shows nothing else, humanity is broken. Um, and, and so, yeah, you're you're going to. It's one of those weird things. It doesn't matter what system you adopt, you're going to feel the effect of that fallenness of humanity. And and we we live in a country
2: where our leader is called a prime minister. A minister means servant. That's right. Ooh. Do you think? that Justin Trudeau views himself as the prime servant. I mean, I I think I can leave that up to you. I mean, that's why we call pastors ministers, right? A minister of the gospel, a servant of the gospel. And maybe that was idealistic at the beginning when we sort of adopted the parliamentary system from the UK when we were a British colony. But I think we've come to a stage in our governmental organizations that kind of watch over us where we have these sorts of titles like prime minister, but I don't, I think it's almost become, it's become a, um, like a, uh, a, a title without kind of a grounding. Uh,
3: it's, it's no, you know, no, you know what I'm saying? I do. I do. But I, I want to push on this a little bit more though, because I find particularly, you know, in politics that people tend to want to, uh, you know, place blame on a person. But what, I, what I'm suggesting, and I'm not saying you're doing this, Wes, but but what I'm saying is that the blame is actually on the philosophy that gets embedded in the society and in the government. And this is why democracy is so important that you have free people that can argue and debate so that we can correct. See, notice, notice that what we're saying here then is right of conscience goes with responsibility because, uh, Within a democracy, it's in it's in it's inherently flawed. It can go astray, and at times must be corrected. So, if we if we go back, if we circle back to this whole um, effective referral, for example, uh, I'll just read for you uh, this excerpt from College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. So, notice this is a body. That is directing our physicians, but they are being guided by a philosophy. It, it, it's not just an individual, it's, it, is a, it is a group of people that have bought into a way of thinking. Now, notice what they say. They say that physicians must not abandon the patient and must provide the patient with an effective referral. Physicians must make the effective referral in a timely manner and must not expose patients to adverse clinical outcomes due to a delay in making the effective referral. And it goes on. uh, Actually, before that, it it goes on about what they must do and they blah, blah, blah. And directing these physicians that become so um detrimental to to the to the what the physicians are in fact there to do they they are and you could imagine when somebody got into medicine they weren't thinking to themselves boy I sure want to get I sure want to get into medicine so that I can you know kill people right those aren't the kind of people you want to go into medicine you want people to go into medicine Right, that are like that are saying, "Hey, I I am wanting to help be in, in you know part of the way of medicine that's going to help to to lead to somebody's flourishing." Uh, those are the kind of people you want there with that with that heightened sense of conscience, right? That they that they are helping people that are most vulnerable, right? Whenever we have a position in society that is servicing vulnerable people, we want them to have a heightened conscience. Yeah. right we hold them to a high standard right but this begins to compromise the sorts of people I would argue that you start to attract to these positions and it starts to uh, push out those sorts of people that you would want to keep in those positions uh, I think you get what I'm saying if your conscience is being violated who wants to stay in that kind of profession and by the way uh, let's just let's just open this up a little bit more with regards to the different kinds of lawsuits that doctors now also have to wade through. I don't know if you guys saw this, but it was in the news today, that there is a a law that's being put forward in the United States that will allow physicians to be um, sued up to 30 years after a child is, I believe, 12 years of age for helping in transgender surgery um, or in the transitioning so, with regards to hormones or surgeries. Now, <clears throat> as I've talked to different physicians, this is something that they're encountering. So, if you're an anesthesiologist or a surgeon or whatever it is, and you've got a 13-year-old coming to you and wanting a double mastectomy, what what do you do, right? Again, it's just, again, it's that they, they're at the front lines of Jeez. that moral gate. Do we go down this path or not? Now, they also, so they've got society saying, you know, one thing, and now they've got, you know, lawmakers saying, the like, you know, you're going to get sued, right? Like, you can only imagine the kind of pressure these poor people are are under right now with a, a, with just the war of worldviews that's going on right now, right? You've got a divided society, and the lightning rods right now are hitting at the front lines of our medical professionals.
1: And this is why I have very little patience. <laughs> I have very little patience for many things. But one thing that I have <laughs> really virtually no patience for are people who say that philosophy is a waste of time. Right? Yeah. There are some people who will say, yeah, it's it's all science. And of course, if we you know what you to l- say
2: to that, Steve... You say, that's a great, that's that's a philosophy, it's just a terrible one.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's exactly right. So some people will say, right, well, you know, it's it's got to be all science. And then if you ask them why science matters, they say science this or science that, already they're in philosophy. But having said all of that, like, I am um, more and more appreciative of the power of philosophy. I mean, I, I knew that that's yeah. how it shaped us. But I guess I have a renewed appreciation for just how deep it goes and how mm. deeply it penetrates all levels of human activity.
3: Isn't that interesting, Steve? Because even for myself, I thought, you know, somebody could even ask, you know, why, Andy, why would you be going to the World Congress in Philosophy of Law, right? Well, notice it's philosophy of law, right? We often think, oh, it's the lawyers, it's the judges that do law. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, no, it's all of us in the philosophies that we're embracing that are actually guiding or hindering our, our conscience. And maybe this would be a good place for us um, to end with this quote by Leo Alexander, again, this individual that was just on the front lines of investigating, where, where we went terribly, terribly wrong with all of this. And he says, it is the first seemingly innocent step away from principle that frequently decides a career of crime. Corrosion begins in microscopic um, proportions. I Mm. think that's right. These are not, we don't, you don't get to the gas chambers in one step. It is many micro steps when we, when we get to historically have taught us that when you go astray, and I think we've got to listen to history and that. Truthfully, I think it's so important that we stand up and that, we're a pay, that we pay attention to our conscience and that we challenge these, uh, these corrosive movements away from seeing the humanity of other people and making sure that we treat them with the dignity and respect that we encounter when we see them correctly. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today on the AC podcast.
0: Please be praying for for Andy and his family and Benny and his family as they are traveling to Romania. Just overall, overall health and safety, but also that they speak with boldness and courage. In, in spaces where the apologetics are, as we as you heard, are not being received easily based on previous events, and so um, Andy, just on behalf of the team, we're we're grateful for you guys, and and uh, how your your education and your passion has led you to uh, speaking at this conference. Listeners, the AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. Make sure to like and subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms. Make sure to interact with us on social media. And once again, please sign up for the ACLE happening this Sunday. You can head to our website at www.apologeticscanada.com and hit the ACLE drop-down bar for all the information that you're going to need. Until next time, love God, love people. Bye for now.